Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute and part of the Christians for Liberty Network. I am your host, Doug Stewart, and I have a guest today who is going to talk about free cities and international cities and how do we get out of the society that we don't want to be in. Well, at least that's the way I'm thinking about this. Like, where can I go to where I can be free? I have Alex Voss, who is a CFO of Tipolis, and he's written and spoken extensively about Bitcoin, Austrian economics, and free cities around the globe. His writings are regularly published in Escape Artist Insiders Magazine and the Free Cities Foundation. He graduated from the University of Notre Dame and the University of Chicago, and he also maintains numerous high-value professional certificates that would basically take me the length of this podcast to list for you. And he is finalizing, or maybe he's already done this, a Master of Austrian Economics at the Mises Institute, and we're going to talk about free cities. Hey, Alex, thanks for joining me. Doug, great to be here. Thanks very much for having me. How's the Master of Austrian Economics? I didn't know they offered such a thing. Well, it's a bit of a sad story at this point. They started this program call it two or three years ago. And as I understand, the costs of getting accredited were perhaps higher than expected. And, and I don't uh, mean okay. financial costs as much as you need to change the curriculum somewhat. Yeah. And so they're unfortunately shutting down the program. So I'm one of, call it 20 people that have been through the program. I will hopefully graduate early next year just with a thesis to go, which is actually on our topic for today of free cities. And yeah, well, jurisdictions. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let's talk a little bit about the idea of a free city and like what exactly is the definition if you had to tell somebody on the proverbial elevator ride. And then I want to talk to you about what your involvement is in moving that idea forward. Perfect. So free cities are self-governing territories or at least partially self-governing territories that uphold individual rights and freedoms and try to make innovative changes to the way that we all live together in order to promote human flourishing. And so typically they'll have some sort of special legal status within their host nation, which grants them some level of autonomy so that they can make decisions that affect their community and how they're living together with their neighbors in this community. Okay. So there's two organizations that you're with, which is Tipolis, which is more of a for-profit slash entrepreneurial endeavor. And then there's the Free Cities Foundation, which in its name, you can kind of tell us it's a nonprofit. So can you tell us what those are all about? Absolutely. So the Free Cities Foundation is a not-for-profit organization, as you mentioned, and it is really focused on promoting the intellectual background as well as the moral case for free cities. It's trying to promote that we don't all have to live in these nation states that are either democratic or authoritarian or, you know, whatever other form of governance that we're living under currently, there are new models that we can try, but it's really focused on this intellectual endeavor and then hosting a conference that we hold each year mm -hmm. towards these ideas. On the other hand, Tipolis is Singapore Capital Corporation that is actually trying to develop these free cities. Now, we've taken the liberty at Tipolis to rename our product International Cities. We think that that's a bit more descriptive of what we're trying to build. They would probably fall within the category of free cities, but it's more of an entrepreneurial endeavor, as you mentioned. 
So that's the company that's actually trying to raise money from investors, negotiate with governments to get the sort of autonomy that we require, and then acquire property, develop it, develop the legal infrastructure and the regulatory infrastructure, and then recruit residents to come and live in those cities around the world. So that's a bit of a difference between the foundation on the one hand and then the business or entrepreneurial arm on the other hand. Yeah. Okay. So you're using the word international cities. And my guess is that you're using that word to sort of attract a certain mindset about what it actually is. And if I can guess, as just somebody reading that word for the first time recently, I would think that you're trying to promote the fact that there is a city, whether it's could be small or large, but generally a larger city that is meant to have its own operational relationships with other nations rather than be only subservient to whatever geographic region it's in. Does that capture it or what did I miss? So I would say in some regards that is correct. We are certainly, I would say on size, as the CFO, I'm very interested in how we get the numbers to work and how do we make the economics of this venture work. And it is true that it's at least up to a certain point and that certain point is hundreds of thousands or millions of residents. It's a lot easier to make these sorts of projects work. It's very hard to provide public resources for a community of 5,000 people or so. And so larger is better in that sense. On the other hand, we aren't necessarily trying to build the new Hong Kong or the new Singapore. We are trying to build communities that people will want to live in. And we think that those vary both in size and scale. We Mm. like the idea of having a what we call a human scale to the cities that people live in. So these skyscrapers, we find some skyscrapers can be good and they do serve a useful purpose. I don't deny that. But it does create a different community dynamic rather than having three or five story walk up buildings with a certain level of density where you're out seeing your neighbors on a more regular basis. So we think that's a very attractive model, at least from an entrepreneurial perspective. So the size is definitely a little bit variable, but ultimately targeted towards that customer. As it relates to relations with other governments and not just the host nation, we are rather explicit that we are under the sovereignty of whichever host nation we are fortunate enough to work with. So in that regard, we don't want to in any way present as taking away from their sovereignty or going around their international relations and foreign policy, those sorts of things. That said, we are absolutely interested in taking the best practices from around the world, the best ideas and the best regulations, all those sorts of things, as well as people from all over the world are welcome into our cities, Mm -hmm. assuming that they, they fit into the sort of criteria that we're looking for. And that is in no way based on race or religion or those sorts of things. It's really about, do you provide, do you make a good neighbor? Yeah. Someone that we can easily include in our city that other people would also like to live with and learn from and experience life with. So I feel like in some ways, the free cities or international cities idea is sort of like the flying car. We're only 10 years away and it'll happen. And it kind of always the way that it is. And or even self-driving cars is kind of like the next thing. It's like, well, in five years, we're gonna have self-driving cars. So in my mind, we don't really have free cities out there, at least in, in the notion that, you know, most libertarians would dream of. But what does exist out there? Or am I wrong? Do these things exist? And how are they doing? 
Sure. I mean, that, that is a great question. And, you know, I think it is a fair enough critique. I myself have been guilty of, hey, there will be one of these existing in the next six months. And I've said that before, and I'll probably say it again. And unfortunately, sometimes these things fall through. That's the nature of these sorts of projects in some regard. Sure. That said, I think we can point to a number of historical examples of what we're going towards. In fact, I would even argue that a place like Singapore or Monaco has some resemblance to a free city. Not a perfect example, but there are elements of the free city there in the sense of there is at least some private level of governance, either through the monarch or through the sovereign wealth fund of Singapore. There is sort of a CEO-like leader, both of those places. So I would say those can serve as examples. Hong Kong, for a while, served as an example as well. The other examples to point to would be the historical examples of the free imperial cities throughout Europe and the Hanseatic League. So these things have existed in the past. And then in terms of the more recent past and sort of up through the modern day, I think what we're seeing is that around 1980, China implemented the policy to create special economic zones. In particular, the famous example is Shenzhen. And that has been wildly successful throughout China as well as the rest of the world. I think Shenzhen went from a small fishing village of call it 30 to 50,000 people to whatever it is now, one of the top 20 most populated cities on the planet, maybe 12 million population, 15 million, something like that, with GDP associatedly growing at the same sort of rate or even faster. That special economic zone model has been exported all over the world. There are now about 150 nations in the whole world. There's about 195 or 196. These numbers can vary slightly depending on who you ask, but call it 200 nation states on earth. And about 150 of them have special economic zones of some sort. And there are about 5,000 or more special economic zones in these various countries. So yeah. this idea of special economic zones, it's certainly the light of what we are going for at Tipolis and even what the Free Cities Foundation is promoting in the sense that it's largely for businesses and it's largely you know, focused on one industry or another. But nonetheless, it's really set the precedent for this sort of one country, two systems type of model mm -hmm. where there are explicit areas within a host nation that are subject to different rules and regulations. And that's what we're doing at Tipolis is trying to, we've seen these zones go from manufacturing to import-export first to a little bit of light manufacturing, heavy manufacturing, then shift a little bit more into services, then have a little bit, you know, financial centers were created in the early 2000s up through about 2010. You see that with the Dubai International Financial Center and some similar cases. And now we're starting to see the shift towards more integrated work-life zones. And I would say Prospera, the example down in Honduras, the existing closest thing towards a free city, is quite the example of that. It's got its own financial center of sorts, but it also is catering towards residents and all the other aspects of what it means to be a human and live life. Hmm. So I think that we're just seeing this trend grow towards more encompassing zones. And this trend, I mean, it's hard to know exactly when we're going to be there. And 10 years is not a long time on the scale that I've just referenced, of course. Yeah. But I right. do see it as coming to fruition at some point. Yeah. A lot of times when we talk about these sort of 
societal changes or societal options such as free cities, it seems a little bit more like, okay, that's a really nice idea, but I'm sort of stuck in Pennsylvania because of family ties or I don't have enough money to invest in this. You know, what can I do? But why do you think it's important for libertarians or for anybody to sort of know about this, learn about it and be interested in it at all? If it's not something that we can sort of tangibly sink our teeth into. Well, I think that there's a couple of reasons for it. First, I absolutely take your point as valid and accept that it's extremely challenging for people to move. I am also living in the U.S. I don't have quite the same constraints. I do have family here, girlfriend here, but no children. So I could conceivably be one of the easier groups to move. And yet I find it challenging myself. That said, I think it's quite important for a couple of reasons. One, I do think the level of top-down governance that we get from traditional governments, and I would probably go so far as to call it tyrannical government, is directly associated with the ability of people to exit from that jurisdiction. Not necessarily that you will exit as much as the threat of exit really does hold governments accountable. And I think that's why we see city-states on average being more prosperous than mm. large, massive nation-states where it requires moving hundreds or thousands of miles and potentially across oceans to leave. So that would be the first reason why. And I would say the second reason why is because this is not necessarily a project just about Americans or Western Europeans. In fact, in Tipolis's business model, when we're trying to build one of these cities, We've come to accept that it is rather difficult to get people to move. It gets hard to move people just down the street, let alone to the other side of a country, let alone to cross borders, and then finally to cross oceans and especially time zones. Those are big challenges to get people to move. So what we have really focused on is we need to make a product that is extremely attractive to the locals of whichever country that we're working in. We want those people to come there and we want them to come because we think that they are very capable of creating valuable goods and services for the world. They're capable of living flourishing lives. And what they're most lacking is private property and the rule of law. Some of those basic institutions that have allowed America, in particular America, but also all wealthy nations to prosper over the last centuries. So let's shift a little bit in the conversation. I want to talk about the Christian ethic and how it relates. And kind of maybe before that, maybe give us a, a sense of your Christian faith. Like where does your faith reside in the panoply of all the kinds of different Christian flavors that we have out there? To mix all my metaphors all in one sentence. <laughs> Absolutely. So I am a practicing Christian. I grew up in a Protestant family. My father is Catholic. I went to Catholic high school. I never was Catholic myself, and I would say to this day, I am still a practicing Protestant, though with solid appreciation for all of the various forms of Christianity. It's also something I would like to spend the next five or 10 years of my life really digging into more and becoming even more devoted. It's something that I maybe lost a little bit early in college, and then early in my professional life became quite busy with work, working in investment banking and finance, and then now with the startup and these sorts of things have a tendency to slip, at least amongst my age cohort. And now it's something I'm looking to get back into. So I think that gives you a little bit of a perspective on where I'm coming from on these questions. 
Yeah, so as a Christian, then how does your Christian faith inform your work in this area? Well, I should say at the outset is that this is really Alex's take on things. It's not necessarily the foundation or Tipolis's. That said, our cities that we're trying to build are not necessarily for any one religion, as I mentioned earlier. That said, I do think that there is a lot of my Christian faith that comes out in this sort of work. It is something that drives me to do this work. I mean, if to be perfectly frank, the world of finance is much easier than the world of entrepreneurship, especially when the world of entrepreneurship involves building a city. That's a very, very challenging task. But the reason why I stick to it and the reason why I really do like and appreciate my work is because I do think that this is something that actually changes the world to be a better place. It allows other people to maximize their well-being and do what they would like to do, Mm -hmm. whether that is start their own business, whatever it is. So I think that that's an extremely gratifying thing that I can do. The other thing that I would add to this is that the more I get back into my Christian faith and the more I think about catering to my future customers at Tipless, the more I realize how wise the religion of Christianity is and how that can actually benefit us from a business perspective. A better way to say it would be they're not contradictory at all. In fact, good Christians would make great customers, people that we can cater to, provide for, and have a mutually beneficial relationship with customers of that faith. Yeah. So I guess I probably should ask a little bit more of a procedural question here. If somebody wants to start an international city and they reach out to you and they're like, hey, I think you could start one of these in such and such a place. Is that how these get started? Do you guys go seek out places that seem right and then you go look for people to invest? Like, How does that work from an operations standpoint? Yeah, so the answer really is that both sides of the coin. So on the one hand, we are certainly doing our analysis of potential countries to work with. This would include things as far ranging as the rule of law and reputation of courts in that country, all the way through what is their ability to access water? What is their ability to raise beef and other food? Okay. So all of those sorts of things create some sort of matrix on how attractive or not a place would be to us. On the other hand, we are very much reliant on our network to bring potential projects to us. We are fortunate that we do have a network of folks that are sometimes in communication with prime ministers, presidents, and other high-level elected officials that they suggest, hey, this would be a good project to look at in this country. Would you mind having a phone call or coming to visit? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that's actually how most of our projects come about is being introduced to those officials through sort of our network. Yeah, okay. So if (laughs) I just have this like, I want to call it a fear, but it's really more theoretical, that there might be this like wealthy Christian who wants to like fire up a city of and make it a Christian nation and, you know, attract all the theonomists and people who want to be <laughs> like start their own Christian nation or somewhere. Would you work with somebody like that? I mean, not that's a very specific type thing, but like if someone has a vision, they're like, hey, I want to start a city and I want to make it Christian or I want to make it different things. Like, how do you handle that kind of thing? Well, You know, it might sound like a little bit of a cop-out, but it is true. The answer is it would depend on a case-by-case basis. From a 
simplest perspective, we're a for-profit company. We're trying to make profits. And so from that perspective, we would do the thing that we think is most beneficial for our company. Mm. As of now, what that means is we're not targeting any particular race, any particular religion, these sorts of things. We're trying to build an attractive place where, call it your average person, regardless of background, would want to live. A place where they can focus on their work and their family and not be caught up in whatever democratic politics and arguing with their neighbor about what this policy should or shouldn't be. Yeah. That's who we're trying to cater to. Okay. That makes sense. The reason I say that is because you probably well know that there's a fairly large contingent of Christians who just wish they could have their own little society. And in some ways, I think we all kind of want that. Like we want to be and live around people who are similar enough to us to where we can have in, you know, engaging and fruitful lives without a whole lot of threat or without a whole lot of conflict, I should say. But, you know, Christians are, I guess, notorious for wanting to sort of escape escape what's happening when they can't get their way. So there's that little bit of like, you know, fear in the back of my head there. Sure. And I think I should also mention, you know, from a typical perspective, we are very open to competition in this market. And so we can't stop people would want to try this. In fact, to some extent, I guess I wouldn't put this as a blanket, try everything type of comment. But nonetheless, we're very open to people trying different models. If you think a sort of Israeli-style kibbutz might work as a free city, okay, that's fine. You know, I don't think Tipolis would do that, but you may. And if you'd like to do this and create a a Christian-only city or a Muslim-only city, more power to you, it's then a question of whether or not you're going to ultimately attract enough residents. And Mm -hmm. our vision at Tipolis is that if you provide a community that is safe and secure, both in property rights and in your physical person for you and your family, that people don't actually care so much about that as much as they don't want to have their own rights infringed on by other people. So if you can keep that private property in place, then it's not really that important about creating some sort of enclave of, you know, just this or that segment of the population. Yeah. Okay. Hey, folks, I just want to take a break from our episode to ask you to consider becoming an LCI insider. We want everyone to feel engaged and excited about what LCI is doing. And the best way to do that is if you become a monthly supporter at $20 or more per month, you will become what we're calling our LCI insiders. You get some free gifts. You get an exclusive Crisis King magnetic lapel pin. We give you two copies of Faith Seeking Freedom. We send monthly ebooks months ahead of when they're released on our public website. You can get discounts on our swag on our online store, and you get exclusive invites to our quarterly live streams with the LCI staff. In addition to that, whenever we do publish something like a physical book like Strangers with Candy, we'll also send you those as well. So the best way to stay up to date on what we're doing and to support what the Libertarian Christian Institute is doing, including supporting the podcast you're listening to right now, is to become an LCI insider. So to do that, go to libertarianchristians.com slash donate and then choose recurring monthly gift and you'll be added to our list automatically. Thank you for your support and I'll let you get back to the podcast. Well, that's a good pivot then to go back to the private property thing because it really does seem like this is a very Lockean view of how can we start or redevelop or upgrade a city or a zone in a way that is consistent with property rights that we would agree to. Is that a fair, accurate statement? Yeah, I would say private property, at least 
in the Free Cities Foundation as well as in Tipolis's view of these sorts of endeavors is absolutely crucial. The main facets really are that there's a contract between the city operator and the potential resident, and that contract lays out exactly what you will receive and exactly what you will pay. So there are no taxes on top. It's just a service like any other in the market. And then private property. And when we think about private property, it's a bit more than, as listeners of this podcast would probably know, but maybe not your average person, is that private property is not just, I own some land. It is actually the ability to utilize some resource the way that you see fit. And so when we think about private property, we think about it in units or in subdivided various things. So you Mm -hmm. might, the the example that we talk about frequently as a sort of case study internally at Tiplis is, do you have a right to not hear the church bells ringing at noon on a Sunday? Or does the church have the right to ring the church bells? Well, that depends on what the contract in the city says. And we might say, fine, the church cannot ring its bells because it goes above uh, this threshold of decibels. On the other hand, if we correctly think about property rights, the church could very easily approach many of the people that live nearby, especially you know just the ones where the decibel threshold is breached. And they might say, look, we would like to ring our church bells at noon on Sunday. Can we buy the right to go over this decibel threshold for this specific reason. And we might pay you a dollar a month or something like that. That's what private property means to us is that all of these rights associated with your property are separable and Mm -hmm. can be negotiated and traded on the free market so that that allows the best allocation of who actually values this. Does the market really value quiet or does the church really value the bell's ringing, and most people don't actually care, which is sort of what we think would happen. Right. I mean, I guess it depends. But, you know, there's always going to be the curmudgeon who wants to extort the people who want to do normal things that everyone else says okay to. So what do you do with that guy who's like, he's the only one in the community and he wants the church to pay? Well, and that's one of the benefits of having an international city in, in our sense is that this is a contractual relationship between the city operator and the resident to the extent that one resident becomes a nuisance and is just trying to harass everyone else and say, you, you know, mowed your lawn five minutes past the time when you were allowed to, or you rang the church bells, or you Mm -hmm. had a barbecue, I got the smell of chicken wafting into my backyard. Well, then that's someone that we as the city operator don't actually want in our city. What we're going for is reasonable people, as I mentioned. And this spans all the way towards just regular interactions in daily life. I think it's a little bit harder to put into a legal context, but much easier to put into a human context. What is the difference between church bells ringing and maybe violating the decibel threshold at noon on a Sunday for five minutes versus, you know, someone blaring their music 2 a.m. on a Saturday night? Yeah. Legally, it can be a little bit tricky to make the nuances, but reasonable people can understand that there's a big difference. And so we as the city operator have that incentive to go for reasonable people that create less problems for us. So then with something like conflict disputes, how do you address that so that it doesn't look like everything is like Judge Judy? Sure. So I think in general, the way disputes will go in one of these cities, 
is there are two sorts of disputes. There are disputes that are amongst residents, you know, small petty disputes amongst residents and disputes between residents and the city operator. And it's very important to make this distinction because the disputes between residents, we would first of all say, this is another reason why we're going for reasonable people because most of these minor disputes can often be alleviated without any form of formal dispute resolution. Just go talk to your neighbor. Sure. And we think that that helps in a major way. In disputes where that simply won't work, we will have a dispute resolution mechanism. Now that could be Tipolis itself or our subsidiary, however we would like to set it up. It could also be a third party private arbiter, someone like the Metis Institute, or even the Prosperous set up an arbitration center, and there's no reason we couldn't bring that service into one of our free cities, for example. Mm -hmm. So those would be the major ways that we would resolve those disputes. And I think that basically accounts for 99% of disputes that would arise. Just real quick, the other form of dispute would be between residents and the city operator. And in that case, we would have in our contract with residents, presumably because residents would demand this, that the dispute would not be resolved in our courts or in our arbitration. It would be resolved in a third party. That could be in England, for example. It could be in Prospera's arbitration center. Wherever it is that we and our residents mutually agree to in the contract to have that resolved is where it will get resolved. Okay. And most likely that will be not in our own courts for the exact reasons you would suspect. Yeah, okay. I like the idea that there's like, contract. So there's a actual contract before entering into the society if I decide to move to one of your cities. Does this contract also stipulate that the police and crime management system that you have in place are not allowed to shoot my dog? Well, I would say, first of all, to that question, we as the city operator are guaranteeing you in this contract, life, liberty, and property. If one of our private security shoots your dog while well, we have deprived you of what we've promised. So you could sue us for that reason. And not just us, but also that private person, that security uh, guard himself, because there is no such thing as qualified immunity in our cities. We think it's very important that people have to take responsibility for the actions that they take. That includes security provision. And I think beyond that, we will have a competitive market for private security within the city. We as the city operator will need to have some level of it to guarantee what we have agreed to in the contract. But you as a private resident are very free to have your own private security to the extent that you'd like it. You're free to bind together with you know your neighborhood or your street or whatever it is, your church community, to employ extra private security that you feel does a better job. So in this sense, we think that the competition of the market will hold all providers accountable and we won't. There will be incidents. I don't mean to create a utopia. Sure, yeah, yeah. There's no institutionalized incentive for these sorts of things that we've come to accept, at least here in America. Yeah, okay. When we were talking before via email, we were talking about reducing the costs of governance. How does that actually happen? You know, I'm, maybe you can describe this a little bit. How is Tipple is profiting on the one hand? And does that mean that Tipolis is the government. Like, what's the relationship there? If I move to a city that was founded or, you know, supported by Tipolis, is that now how I'm funding what would have otherwise been government? Lay that out for us. Sure. So just to make things a little more challenging, <laughs> Tipolis will set up subsidiary companies 
that will own and operate these cities. And those subsidiary companies will, in effect, be the government of this area. And so those subsidiaries will make profit in two primary ways. One is through resident fees, and the other is through land sales. So the land sales is pretty intuitive, and I'll go through that real quickly, and then we'll turn towards the resident fees. So the land sales, from our perspective, is the massive profit opportunity. That is what we are perceiving at Tipolis in the market as the reason why we can do this profitably. We would like to negotiate with a host nation. They say, okay, we like this idea. We would like to experiment with it. And on that basis, Tipolis acquires virgin territory, hasn't been developed, no one lives there, so no one can accuse us of any sorts of expropriation, those sorts of things. We're buying it on the private market. We would then develop the city, both the physical infrastructure and the software, the sort of legal and regulatory infrastructure, and then have people move to the city. And we think that if you take a look at potential real estate appreciation from that, you're going from undeveloped to developed, you're going from rural, typically, land to urban land. You're going from basically a third world jurisdiction in many cases, or at least a subpar jurisdiction, to not just a good jurisdiction, but arguably the greatest in the world, or at least you know a very elite yeah. jurisdiction. And then you are, because we're private governance, we are not going to have the restrictions that other people do in terms of what you can develop and where. So we're basically cutting your handcuffs off and allowing you, as someone who owns land within our city, to develop the land as you want. All of these sorts of things lead to real estate appreciation on the scale of what we've seen as you, know, you take some rural land, like I just described, and call it your generic Latin American country, and you turn it into a Singapore or a Hong Kong mm -hmm. or a Monaco. That sort of real estate appreciation is 500,000 times so we're talking about massive potential increases. Now, I don't say that to say we will achieve that or any sorts of numbers. I don't know that. It's very challenging to do this, but it shows you the upside is there, and that's what we're really aiming to do. Okay, I see. So that's, that's on the land side. Then on the resident fee side, and why I've been focused on this Christian ethic, is we, in that contract that we've signed with each resident, we will charge what we call resident fees. Those fees are just a flat amount and they are agreed to voluntarily as denoted in the contract. This replaces all taxes. Now for Americans, sorry, I can't get you out of what Uncle Sam's going to tax you, but for basically most other countries, this would replace all of your tax burden. And for this service, what you're basically agreeing to is that I will pay, call it $4,000 a year, $5,000 a year, something like that, to the international city company, and they guarantee me life, liberty, and property, as well as some dispute resolution services in the case that they're needed. That's about all that relationship that exists. And so from that perspective, when we look at what it costs to provide governance, especially in sort of municipal situations here in the U.S., where much of that information is widely available. We believe that it costs about, I call it $1,500 to $2,500 per year per resident to provide governance services. And that actually includes typically the decent amount of what's put in operating budgets. That is, you know, 
replacement capital investment. So fixing the roads, fixing some dilapidated buildings, those sorts of things. It doesn't include the initial capital expenditure, but it does replace that stuff. So from that perspective, if we're able to charge $4,000 a year and it costs us $2,000 a year, you can perceive the profit right there. Yeah. And so the goal is to keep that cost per resident low. And the way you do that is have mostly reasonable people that are causing problems for us and for their neighbors. Okay. So in terms of governance, people come to these cities, they have a contractual agreement with an organization or a company. What about the people running those companies? I mean, what sort of parameters are there in terms of like basically the what we would currently see of as elected officials? Does that exist? How does that work? And how are those parameters set? Well, it's largely through private competitive markets, and that's how these things are regulated. We as Tipolis have to find the right people to be basically the city government. There is no elections. There's nothing to vote on, and we think that's explicitly a good thing about this model. And then on top of that, you we get companies to come in, and there's going to be successful businesses as well as just community members, and these sorts of people can certainly gain influence. But at the end of the day, the influence that they have to gain ultimately is to make a point back to the profit-seeking company that, hey, I think it would be better if you guys did this. And ultimately, that's going to have to be the profit-seeking company, Tipolis's subsidiary, is going to benefit from it in some regard. So you're not going to get these sorts of people that are lobbying the government and say, hey, can you do this because it helps my segment of the population? Well, Mm -hmm. we would do that, but only if that in total raises the value of our enterprise overall. Okay. And we think okay. that's the best way to regulate it. Yeah. All right. We get to talk a lot about, I'm sure you get, everybody's asking, like I am, you know, the practical question, how does this work? And how does that work? And what's your take on handling this kind of dispute or, or whatever? Is there something that you would want our listeners to know that we haven't already discussed? And then where can they go learn more? We've talked about Tibulus and Free Cities Foundation. You probably want to give those websites. But first, what from you would you want Christians to know about this sort of endeavor? Absolutely. I think the key thing to keep in mind about this endeavor is that it's very entrepreneurial. You know, I've sat here and I've given answers, and these are the answers that we think are correct right now. But I emphasize think because we don't actually know, and it's possible that there are other solutions out there that are better. There's always room in this market. It's a growing market. There are more and more competitors on a regular basis. And there's each of these teams is growing as they're achieving some success. So I would say there's definitely room to get involved and to share your ideas on all these sorts of things. And, and there's no guarantee that I'm correct in, in anything necessarily mm-hmm. that I've said about our entrepreneurial efforts. All right. So what are the website addresses that people can find? Great. I have three websites for you. The first is where you can find a bit more about Tipolis. That is tipolis.com. You can hear all about our international cities and our best efforts there. If you'd like to follow a bit more of the intellectual route, you can go to the Free Cities Foundation website. That would be at free-cities.org. And the final place I would send people is the Free Cities Foundation does hold an annual conference. This year, it is in the Czech Republic. You can find information about the conference at libertyinourlifetime.org. All right. Excellent. Well, Alex, I appreciate you joining me to talk about this. I wish you well in these endeavors because this is clearly an important element in the move toward more liberty in our lifetime. And hopefully we can achieve that in greater and greater measure over time.
Thanks for having me, Doug. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hello, everyone. It's Doug from the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You might notice already that this recording sounds quite a bit different from usual. In fact, it probably sounds pretty crappy. Well, I'm doing this to show you something pretty amazing. As you might know, the guys over at Podsworth Media have been producing my show for several years, quite a while, hundreds of episodes. And now they have a brand new online app for taking rough recordings like this one and making them sound a whole lot cleaner and a lot more listenable in just a few easy clicks. So here are some of the core features. They remove background noise. It reduces plosives, which is really handy for me because I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video. I often forget to put my pop filter on before I do a YouTube video because pop filters look terrible when you're on camera. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It fixes clipping. It removes clicks and pops. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. It evenly levels dialogue so that you don't have somebody talking really quietly. And then somebody talking really loud because they're too close to the mic or too far away from the mic. How do you use it? It's easy. You go to podsworth.com. You click get started. And because you're a listener to one of the Libertarian Christian Institute's podcasts, you can get 50% off your first order by entering the promo code LCI50. That's LCI50 and you will get 50% off your first order. If you are doing anything like a podcast, a video, a sermon, an audiobook, anything that's spoken word, you want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished. You want to use podsworth.com and clean up your audio to be even more professional and polished.